I'm Benjamin Perrin. In this podcast, I'll take you behind the scenes of my new book, Indictment, The Criminal Justice System on Trial. You'll hear from people who are imprisoned, survivors of violent crime, whistleblowers, insiders, and investigators. You be the judge. Join us as we expose injustice, challenge the system, and explore a new transformative justice vision. I'm Benjamin Perrin, and this is Indictment. As a 60 Scoop survivor who survived physical and sexual abuse, Angeline was disbelieved and denied protection by the police, a repeated pattern throughout their life. These experiences totally destroyed their trust in the police, which is a sentiment shared by many other Indigenous people today. A content note. Today's episode includes a general discussion of colonial violence and racism against Indigenous people, including residential schools, the 60 scoops, and police violence. Sexual abuse against an Indigenous person as a child, intimate partner violence, a graphic description of a childhood physical assault by an adoptive parent, the failure of child welfare staff and police officers to provide protection, and a description of an assault by a police officer against an Indigenous person. So please, if you need support, check out the show notes for resources. I'm a sociology major. I've been in university for seven years. I'm an Indigenous treaty person from Treaty 6 territory, Saskatchewan. You know, I'm a 60 scoop survivor. I'm 32 years old. Uh, my adoptive parents were white. I went into the foster care system when I was 14 and aged out. I was, I'm also a single mother. And uh, yeah, that's the gist of it. What is the 60 scoop? The 60 Scoop happened throughout Canada from the 1960s to the late 80s. Child welfare authorities scooped 20,000 Indigenous children from their families. Most of the children were adopted by white families. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission report stated the 60s Scoop, quote, adversely affected parenting skills and the success of many Aboriginal families. Critics say it was a racist effort to assimilate Indigenous Canadians, and those who lived through it say they were robbed of their cultural identity. Cindy Blackstock is an advocate for Canadian Indigenous youth and families. State removal of First Nations, Métis and Inuit children really has happened in three phases in Canada. The first phase was a residential school system, for which uh, the Prime Minister has acknowledged was cultural genocide. But there was layover with the 60 scoop because as residential schools, they were used as child welfare placements too. But as they began to close, the federal government invited provincial child welfare systems on reserve to take, uh, to take that place. And what happened is we had social workers who were not trained very well. We had families on reserve suffering multi-generational trauma and that not being addressed or acknowledged. And then we had the inequitable services on reserve, which created a whole cascade where mass removals of these kids would happen. And then if we fast track up until today, we have the January ruling by the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal saying that the federal government's underfunding child welfare so significantly, about 70 cents on the dollar compared to other kids, that that is leading to another phase of mass removals of First Nations children from their families that could often be prevented. So there's three phases to this very tragic story. 
I guess my first interaction with the criminal justice system was when I was a child. I was sexually insulted by a neighbor when I was six, and I was questioned by the police. And then again, when I was 14 years old, I um, cut off a piece of a cheerleader's hair at school because she made fun of my mocklucks and my moccasins. And the police threatened to charge me, but they never did. I think like, you know, to save face for the other girl. That's when I got kicked out of home. And I was in the drop tank a few times when I was a young, like a teen person. And then when I was in my 20s, that was when I was in an abusive relationship. And I had a lot of contact with police. I had some charges for domestic violence, which was bullshit because pretty much all of the stuff that I did was in self-defense. But like, because I was in an abusive relationship, I, I always either dropped the charges or I never charged my partner, but he always charged me. So he got off without a criminal record, but I, I had a criminal record for things that I didn't even do. I think one of the most frustrating things was like, there was a guy witnessed me apparently kicking my ex when I did not, but the witness was drunk and like he was drunk at the time of the incident and he was drunk when he showed up in court and they they didn't care oh yeah and then there was another time in my youth when I got arrested I forget what it was for but it was like I was being charged with something and then the crown prosecutor was talking about how I came from like a good home just because I was raised by white people I was like okay like you can't assume that like I had a good upbringing just because I grew up with white people I was like physically abused in my adopted home and sexually abused by by a neighbor. So like just because they were white, that meant that like, oh, she must like, you know, have, have had good opportunities and had a good experience. So like in terms of the police were very convinced that like I was always the perpetrator, regardless of how anyone else abused me. So fast forward to when I was an adult, I, I reported to the police um, about the physical abuse in my adoptive home and they interviewed my little sister. I, like she had witnessed the, the assault and the police um, had decided that because my little sister had said that I was like thrown. And this was, I, I, I was physically abused when I was like a teen. So I was like 13 years old. This was shortly before I got kicked out of school and I got kicked out of my home. But my, my little sister witnessed against me and said that I was like having a tantrum and that my adoptive dad was calming me down when like in reality he choked me he like put his hands on my neck like choking me I don't really think that that's calming down a teenager that's an assault but the police said it like that they said oh like we heard that you were freaking out and so you needed to be restrained and so they had a witness saying that I was assaulted to like this was a necessary assault because you were the one who posed a threat to the people in the room. I had a I had a, a partner, an ex partner who assaulted um, he ended up because I was as I was phoning the police, he like slapped the phone out of my hand and my and, he, and the phone hit my son. And I told the police, I'm like, he assaulted my son. And the police like didn't believe me because they said it was an accident. But then they called social services and I had to like have like an investigation because my partner did violence against me. 
and the police refused to charge him, even though the victim was a child, my child. I couldn't protect my own child because the police refused to charge. Well, they wanted to turn it against me. Yeah. 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 You're not protecting your kid instead of what you're doing by calling the police, actually, right? Yeah. Yeah. They so like they're allowing my son to be attacked and they're refusing him justice on the basis yeah. we're both indigenous. My ex partner was white passing. Oh yeah, and then there was an assault in a grocery store. This dude comes up to me and shoves me, and there's video evidence of that too. It's a grocery store, and like all of these people saw it, and like no one tackled him. The security guard didn't tackle him. Like I've seen people, like indigenous people who have assaulted people, attack. You know, in order for like, you know, hold them down to the police come. Right. You know, but when it's a white male who assaults a person of color, they're all like, oh, no, no, like, you know, just let him run away. Like and then last week where like the police officer actually assaulted me, I was driving and I don't know, like I was changing lanes. But like this this guy behind me got mad at me. So like he pursues me and I'm like, What's this guy going to do like and he pulls up next to me and like my windows are down. This guy, he pulls up right next to me and he tries to spill on me, like through my window. And so I pursue him and he pulls into this house. So I like pulled and like, you know, blocked him and like in the driveway. Turns out this this isn't even this guy's house. It's just some random person. And so I'm like sitting there and I'm calling the cops and they're like, what's your name? And like, I, I know what's going to happen at this point. And so I was like, you know, my name isn't important. Just get here. And they're like, oh, well, you know, don't escalate the situation like just drive away. And I'm like, I am not driving away. This guy is trying to assault me. And so I was like, no, I am not leaving. You were coming here. You're just going to like, you know, have to take my word for it that this man like assaulted me. So then the cops get there and there was and there was two witnesses. I'm like, can you stay here? Can you stay here until the police come? Because like I know that like once the police show up, they're going to try and run away. They're going to try and like, you know, make it into my fault. They're going to like, you know, it's just going to be a bad scene. So Anyways, the cops come and of course they don't charge and they're like, oh, you know, we're never going to be able to prove that he he assaulted you, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, don't you guys like, you know, chase down homeless people and like attack them just because like some white dude said that guy, that guy attacked me. But like, I can't say like this guy attacked me and you're not going to like, you know, drag him in to the station just because he's a white dude. So like this like cop is like getting in my face. He's like, putting his hand like this in my face and then I'm like I'm gonna put my hand in your face I don't plan to put your hand in my face and then he grabs my wrist twists it around and he's like you're either you're gonna walk away or you're going to jail and I'm like I'll like go to jail for what like police officers are willing to invent any kind of story to justify their violence so like what kind of a story were they gonna tell like she like dug his nail into me I was bleeding like I like I had some swelling but like that one guy he was like, whoa, whoa, like you guys just like assaulted this woman. Like I saw the whole thing and I was like, yes. And I'm like, please, like, like you need to be a witness to, to this. We're going to file a complaint, you know, because your voice matters more than mine because you're a white male. One in five Indigenous people in Canada have little or no confidence in the police. An even higher proportion of Indigenous people, almost a third, believe the police are performing poorly. Particularly lacking is the ability of police to treat people fairly and be approachable and easy to talk to. Indigenous people are significantly more likely to have contact with the police compared with non-Indigenous, non-visible minority people. 
Studies have also revealed that racialized people in crisis are even more likely to have force used against them by police than others exhibiting mental health distress. In June 2020, Indigenous Services Minister Mark Miller responded in a press conference to a series of allegations of police abuse of force and killings of Indigenous people. Yes, good morning. Um, in, you talked uh, just recently about safety and security um, and violence against Indigenous women, but in the last week alone, we've had several incidents. We had the BC Independent Investigation Office recommend charges against five RCMP officers for the death of an Indigenous man. We have that Nunavut RCMP officer who uh, has been has left the community after that video of the truck running into a man. Uh, and then yesterday we had the uh, the death of a woman in New Brunswick at the hands of police. What do you say to Indigenous Canadians who don't feel safe when the police show up? I I watched um, in disgust yesterday a number of these incidents. A car door is not a proper police tactic. It's a disgraceful, dehumanizing, and violent act. I don't understand how someone dies during a wellness check. Uh, you look at it and you say, yes, there'll be an independent investigation, but frankly, uh, along with many Canadians, Indigenous peoples living in Canada, uh, politicians, I'm pissed, I'm outraged. Um, There needs to be a full accounting of of what has gone on. This is a pattern that keeps repeating itself. Um, I I spoke with my team a couple days ago, um, as a number of them are Indigenous, and are feeling the, the, the one-year anniversary of, of the report in a way that I'll never experience. Um, and, and the issue of, of, the, of safety came up. And, and this is something that touches Indigenous peoples in a way that I won't experience it. Uh, my team and I saw it. Uh, we saw the real fear that was experienced at Tyandinaga, where I felt safe around police forces and they didn't. Um, I can't speak for them. I can't speak for Indigenous peoples, but I see it uh, you can it's palpable it's painful um, police serve Canadians and indigenous peoples of Canada not the opposite and um, it's something that we need to reckon as a society as we look south to the disgraceful acts that are occurring down there uh, and um, these independent inquiries need to need to bring justice um, that's my reaction Next question. Do you think these experiences are unique? One of the reasons why I pursued my education was in order to protect myself from these sorts of incidents, you you know, because it humanizes me like to have an education. Um, Like I know it happens to other people. Like I know people who just like won't even call the cops whatsoever when they get something or anything happens because they know that the police are going to help them or they're going to make it worse. When, when I phone the police, it's me who's under investigation, not the person that I'm reporting. And like, even if there's video evidence of the assault, they're still not going to judge. If, they, if things don't go their way, if they don't like the situation, they're going to make something up in order to justify committing violence against me. 
An indigenous man and his granddaughter who were arrested and handcuffed by Vancouver police after a bank accused them of fraud have now reached a settlement of their human rights complaint against the Bank of Montreal. Maxwell Johnson, an artist from the Heltzik Nation, was simply trying to add his granddaughter's account to his own. Bank employees not only refused, they called 911. Now after two and a half years, Johnson is reflecting on what he calls a long, hard journey. Part of our culture is to forgive. We don't hold on to anything. Maxwell Johnson never wanted to be the center of this story, yet today he came back to the same spot on a Vancouver street in front of a BMO bank, which wrongly accused him and his granddaughter of fraud. His human rights complaint against the bank finally settled. I'm just glad to be able to um, stand up for myself and for my, my kids and grandkids and other people that are afraid to come forward to stand their ground. It was here two and a half years ago that he and his then 12-year-old granddaughter were arrested and handcuffed. All he tried to do was open a bank account using their Indigenous status cards as ID. The bank refused, suspected fraud, and called the police. There was no evidence of fraud, no charges were laid, and the bank has since apologized. In April, an independent review found the two officers acted without reasonable and probable grounds. They were suspended for several days. The officers who made the arrests have been invited to an apology ceremony in Bella Bella. They have yet to accept. There is deep disappointment in a British Columbia Indigenous community tonight. Two Vancouver police officers did not show up at a traditional apology ceremony they were invited to by the Heltzuk First Nation. Instead, the event became a way to honour Maxwell Johnson and his granddaughter, who were wrongly accused of fraud and arrested three years ago while trying to open a bank account. Two chairs were left empty in the front row where the officers were expected to be. The apology ceremony was part of a settlement agreement between Johnson and the Vancouver police board. Vancouver's police chief was there. He has denied there is systemic racism in the force. Heltzik hereditary chief Frank Brown questioned that. The racism has been sheltered and condoned if you don't hold individuals accountable. What you shared was a whole series of things where, as you said, you were the one who was suffering harm at the hands of other people, and yet the system turns it around on you. How that makes you feel? Well, like, it doesn't really matter, like, what I report, like, what evidence there is almost. It's like they're always going to turn it around and make it into, like, my issue because they know that, like, you know, I can't afford a lawyer or they, they know that they can always lie for each other. Essentially, what the police, in my mind, are doing is creating their own crime statistics in order to promote their image of what crime looks like so that they can get more funding to justify the violence they do to people of color and to reinforce white supremacy because I've seen so okay yeah like because yeah like my dad would be charged as a child abuser he wouldn't be allowed to leave the country to go for work you know these this impacts the economy and and it's crazy so um they had a witness for an assault against a child and they still didn't charge because they said that me as a child was a threat to the adult so the adult was justified in assaulting me and then they can go out and say things like oh you know indigenous people commit this number of crimes and white people commit this number of crimes so we are policing the right people while you end up not charging all of these white people so that you can invent a reason to continue to be violent towards people of color and allow white people to 
they essentially do whatever they fuck they want to do and commit crimes without any kind of consequences. And that, again, that gives white people a sense of entitlement, power, and a sense of I will never be held accountable for the crimes I commit against people of color. Based on your experience with the the justice system, I mean, what would you want people to know to know about it? You know, just here, like, I've been assaulted four times. I was assaulted by a white woman, and I had video evidence of that assault. Like I was holding up my phone, videotaping her, and I showed the police officer, and he's like, "The crowd has no interest in charging this woman." What did that and, mean? Like, what, what does that mean? Basically, they're not going to charge her. Even if I have video evidence of the assault, because me as an Indigenous person, they don't really have too much of a reason to support me at all. key part of a new transformative justice vision is Indigenous justice. In communities with Indigenous-led peacekeeping and policing, we've seen a 25% decline in violent crime and higher levels of satisfaction from community members. Despite these incredible results, Indigenous-led policing is chronically underfunded. Way back as 1999, the report of the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry of Manitoba found that, quote, simply providing additional court services in Aboriginal communities or otherwise improving what is inherently a flawed approach to justice is not, in our view, the answer, unquote. Instead, the commission went on to recommend the establishment of Aboriginal justice systems in all Aboriginal communities, operated and controlled by Aboriginal people, including a fully functional legal system complete with policing, justice services, courts, and support services. As the BC First Nations Justice Council told me, it's time for Indigenous people to take the driver's seat. Thank you for listening today. Be sure to subscribe to get the latest episodes as they go live. And remember to rate and review us. To find out more, get a copy of my latest book, Indictment, the Criminal Justice System on Trial by Benjamin Perrin, published by the University of Toronto Press. All author royalties are directly donated to nonprofit organizations that support people who've been incarcerated and survivors of violent crime. Indictment was recorded on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territories of the Musqueam people. To protect their privacy, the names of people with lived experience have been changed. This podcast is obviously not intended to provide legal, medical, or therapeutic advice. If you're in need of help with any of these things, please consult a professional for assistance. The topics we cover can be upsetting and triggering. If you need support, please check out the show notes for resources. Funding and support for indictment was provided by the Law Foundation of British Columbia and the University of British Columbia. Indictment is produced by me, Benjamin Perrin, and Dora Duber. Keep listening and stay safe.
See you next time.